We've been particularly focusing on the life of Jacob, and as we get to chapter 35, we are wrapping up really the, the cycle of stories that focus on Jacob. Now, he, he remains a character in the rest of Genesis, but the focus narratively shifts towards his children, uh, starting in verse 37. But chapters 35 and 36 are kind of wrapping all of that up. And we're going to read the beginning of chapter 35. The, the end of chapter 35, just so you know, and why we're not reading it, is just it starts to summarize. Here are his kids, and here's who he had, as, you know, the Bible does from time to time, in particular Genesis does, often in transitions as sort of recaps who's who and who's coming. And so it, it summarizes his family, and then chapter 36 summarizes his brother Esau's descendants and where they came from. Now, all of that is important for the later life of Israel, uh, since the descendants of Esau make up the neighbors and the neighboring nations. Uh, we're not going to spend time on that <laughs> in this uh, particular series, but that's part of why all of that's there. For the time being, though, what we get and what we'll read this morning from chapter 35 is a, a kind of closing montage sequence for Jacob. Um, some final events kind of wrapping up him, more or less, as a character, as he, sh- as he kind of fades into the background of the narrative. So, we'll pick up at the beginning of chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bekuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. 
And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot going on in that. But God gives all of that and all of his word so we can understand him. So let's pray that he would open it to us this morning. Father, we ask that you send your spirit because we do need your spirit to illuminate your word, to help us to understand in the stories of this particular life what you are doing in all of our lives and the ways in which you are at work to redeem us, to save us, to change us. Lord, be with us this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, a few years back when uh, Mad Men, you remember that show, was wrapping up, whether you watched it or not, I don't know. You know, it was set in the late 50s and 60s, and uh, people started having like Mad Men parties where they would dress up like they were going to the office in the 60s, I don't know. That's, that kind of fandom is not my thing, I guess. But uh, it begged a question, right? Do people like, get what's happening in this show? Do they? Yes, it looks very sleek. And that's part of the point, right? The sort of Madison Ave uh, advertising agency. It all looks great on the outside. It looks beautiful. But do they get the critique of what's going on? Uh, both culturally and with the individuals involved? kind of a, it, it makes the whole fandom thing a little strange. Um, well, one of the things that we love in a good show like that, though, is that we're not quite sure how to feel about the characters from episode to episode. Uh, I, the, the show Better Call Saul, which was one of my favorites, was just wrapped up, and that's definitely the... the uh, the same thing that happens, episode to episode. How do I feel about this character? I don't really know. He's kind of a bad guy. Maybe there's something redemptive about him. I don't know. Well, I think I feel the same way about Jacob when we read these stories. It's like, I don't know how to feel about this guy. He is both sinner and saint. And we know he's a sinner. But he's also being redeemed by God. And, you know, we started off talking about Jacob and talking about how modern a character he really is for any number of reasons, which, some of which we'll talk about in a minute. But in this way, Jacob is a relatable character because the truth of the matter is that anybody, anybody that God meets, 
remains this side of eternity, sinner and saint. For Jacob, it sort of culminates in these two names that he has. On the one hand, he is Jacob. He is the heel grasper. He is the one that's always grasping at things. And then on the other hand, he is the one who is Israel, who wrestles with God. In some ways, that's all we're going to see, right? His old name and his new, that he is sinner and saint. And let's think about his old name first, Jacob, heel grasper. Think about how this story or these sets of stories that are kind of all squished together, bring out so many of the themes that we've seen in Jacob's life. For one thing, as it begins, God tells him to go back to Bethel. That's the place where he had seen the stairway to heaven. Um, he had had that, bi- that big powerful vision on his way out of the promised land. And God tells him to go back there and to worship him. But what does he need to do? You notice this in verse 2, put away the idols that were in his house. I mean, that's a little curious, isn't it? <laughs> Jacob is uh, pretty, apparently pretty tolerant of his household worshiping another god. Um. The presence of foreign gods in his house is a really telling detail of idols. Uh, by the way, the bit about earrings <laughs> in verse 4 when they get rid of them and it says they threw away their earrings, uh, it's a little unclear what, what's happening there, but uh, they, there is some archaeological evidence that a lot of the uh, idols would have earrings attached to them. And so that might that was probably connected in some way with the worship of idols. It's not to say anything about earrings right now. Um, but those earrings <laughs> were associated some way with that. But we see that, again, he is sort of tolerant. He knows who the one true living God is who has helped him, and yet he puts up with the worship of other gods. So, Jacob is compromised in that way. He also, we also get a sense of what we've already known about him is that the things that he really loves, that he tries to grasp onto, slip away. There's a passing comment there about Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, in verse 8. We only read about her briefly, but uh, apparently this is someone who helped care for him. Then we read about her death, and he ends up calling that place Alon Bakuth, which means the oak of weeping. So she obviously was important to him. And then, of course, uh, starting in verse 18, we get, or uh, verse 16, we get the story of Rachel's death uh, in childbirth. Well, Rachel was the one that he always wanted. And, you, you know, she had the. They had 11 boys in relatively, well, in real time, I'm not quite sure how much time goes by, but uh, they had 11 boys in what seems like relatively short order several chapters back, and Joseph was her first son. 
and that's the last of them. So he's the youngest of the first 11. And then it seems like a good bit later, she has the second son, Benjamin. But even she names him Ben-Oni, which means uh, son of my sorrow. And I've, I've wondered, why did Jacob change the name? And I wondered if he could handle having that kind of reminder hanging around day in and day out. Uh, We will see down the road, uh, as the narrative starts to focus more on the sons, uh, that he does treat Joseph and Benjamin, Rachel's two boys, differently. Um, But so being the son of his right hand, meaning my right-hand man, uh, makes a lot of sense too, but it, it's a poignant scene, right, where he loses the one that he always really wanted around. And then there's the family betrayal. And this is, the, the la- this is verse 22, the last little narrative bit we get before the summary of all the, you know, of of the kids that picks up after this is this little fact that Reuben sleeps with Bilhah, who was the servant who also had several of the other boys. Uh, And that little line that ends it, and Israel heard of it. So there is a family betrayal going on here. I mean, of a kind that is, you know, pretty shocking stuff. It gets treated in short order, but if we're paying attention, the power of that, of that brevity, speaks loudly, doesn't it? It's not only that he has slept with something like his stepmom, but the, the kind of dishonor that this is. And Reuben is the firstborn, is the one who's supposed to be the leader, who's supposed to reinforce the honor of the family. And the reality is that that little line that Israel heard of it, Israel heard about it, uh, will play out in what follows? In chapter 37, we'll get to chapter 37 next week, uh, but we probably won't talk much about this, so I'll mention it now. Uh, Reuben is the one who keeps Joseph from being killed by his other brothers. It's a, it's a strange little fact, and this is what he says there. Or, or, well, he says don't kill him, but the narrator tells us he did all this, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. And then later on, he leaves the scene, and they decide that they're just going to sell Joseph off as a slave instead. And when Reuben comes back, we're told he tore his clothes uh, and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? This was his chance. he's He's obviously on the outs with his father. And this was the one chance he thought he had to get back in. Well, you can see that the family betrayal that has marked Joseph's life 
is getting played out in the next generation toward him. Which is to say then that this kind of montage of, st- of stories that we get, sort of summarizing the, uh, Jacob's life, it's playing out all these themes of, of, of the things that he has been, he's gone after or been willing to tolerate in the way in which all the things that he thinks he's wanted have evaporated when he tries to cling to them. And how his own sin that rebounds on him. It's a tough lesson. And what, Jacob's a hard character to read about for those reasons. That it's a tough reminder. Uh, at the beginning of his, of his book, The Soul of Desire, Kurt Thompson says this. He says, most of our well-intentioned attempts to counter the storms of our inner and outer lives involve identifying our problems and devising solutions for them. But in our hurry to diagnose and treat our diseases of the soul, we are often outrun by the very fear that is driving us to identify and resolve them. He's making this point that when we don't really actually understand what motivates us, we try to problem solve. And most of our attempts at problem solving in our lives fail because we don't actually understand what's driving us. And I do think that Jacob is learning and changing in these stories, and yet it's been a slow, slow process. That's a hard thing to hear. That's a thing we don't want to hear a lot about, maybe even especially on Sunday morning. That this change is slow and that's incremental. You see, the bottom line is most of us want to hear some version of the idea that people are basically good. Well, Scripture doesn't teach us that. We were made good in the beginning. But the reality of of that hope that people are basically good falters at some point or another for almost everybody. I mean, whether we're listening to Scripture or not, sooner or later, somebody that you are close to will betray you. Or you will realize that something is deeply wrong in your family, with your friends. Experience will at some point or another crush that idea that people are basically good. You almost never hear anybody who's older say that. I think there's a reason for that. Maybe we would do well to heed Scripture on this point. And, but look, we, maybe, maybe we don't buy that. But we like some lighter version of it. If you do the work, you will change. Right? Because that at least sounds like, well, we understand not, you know, it's not going to be, everybody's not going to be good. Everybody's not going to be nice all the time. But what's tricky about even that seemingly easier 
to palate idea that if you do the work, you will change, is that change is sometimes exceedingly slow. And sometimes you know people who seem to have, be doing the work and getting nowhere. Maybe you felt that way. I've been working on this thing forever, and I'm getting no traction. And listen, I mean, those are narratives you find everywhere, but you find it in the church as much as you find it in American society at large. In the church, though, people say things like, well, I'd like to think that doesn't happen here. (laughs) You know, every time they do studies about any major societal problem and they look at the church, what do they find? But there's statistically no difference. Isn't that funny? It's not really ha-ha funny. It's like, oh boy, can't believe that's what it's like. I, I, several years back, so our, at our denominational level, we just had a study committee uh, produce a report on domestic abuse and sexual assault. And several years back, I was, I was working with a group of folks trying to formulate that proposal uh, to get that report or get a study committee form. And that, you know, this is a very Presbyterian kind of thing. But I was doing legwork, talking to a lot of, of ministers and elders in our denomination. And I certainly won't say everybody. Largely, people thought this was a, an issue we needed to deal with. But a not insignificant number of people at some point when I was having those conversations would say, I'd like to think that it doesn't happen here. But we might like to think that. But the truth of the matter is that we spend, and listen, the Bible is clear about this. We will spend our whole lives in the process of dealing with our sin. Because it goes that deep. It goes into the very heart. It goes down to the core of what drives and animates us. will not be done away with completely until we die. But you see, here is something that comes out when we we start to realize that, is the question of what is the gospel really about? Is it about me and how I get on with my goals? how I get on with being fixed? Or is it about the grace of God towards sinners from start to finish? I'm not saying there, can't, there won't be change. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? <laughs> I'm not saying that there won't be change. I'm not saying that there isn't hope. I'm saying, in fact, that there is a cruel and sinister lie that we all tend to buy into that I'm going to be fixed quick. That my problems are going to get resolved and in short order. 
And what Scripture is telling us is that you need to buckle up for the long haul. That you need to get used to the idea that when you think you've hit the floor of understanding sin in your life, you've only just begun to scratch the surface. And I know, and I mean, in fact, I know some of you have had this experience of particular moments of breakthrough and starting to realize that, uh-oh, when I thought I had hit bottom, I realized there was a whole nother canyon below that. And that at least in terms of our sin in the depth of the problem, there is seemingly no way to plumb the depths of it. And even as we come to terms with our forgiveness in Christ, we still have to deal with the results of our sins. We still have to deal with others in repentance. There are consequences sometimes for the things that we've done or said. Jacob is still a sinner. Even though he's getting older, he's getting to be an old man at this point. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when, but he's getting up there. He's still a sinner. That has not stopped being true. And even if you are in Christ, the, the reality that you are still a sinner has also not changed. And it's a dangerous thing when we start to think, well, I've moved past that. I'm not saying we can't celebrate victory over sins. That's not what I'm That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is when we start to put ourselves categorically into somebody who has done with sin or done with this particular sin in my life, we are in a dangerous position. We ought to always be suspicious of what lurks in our own hearts. And yet, and yet, Jacob is one of the saints. He has a new name. He is Israel. It gets reiterated here. We, it was a name that was given initially back in chapter 32. And this is one of these moments where sometimes more critical scholars will look at this and be like, well, there's a repeat episode here. He gets a new name. What's going on? Well, this is obviously a much more formal situation. I think what is going on here is that it's being ratified, right? It's formally being changed. His name is now Israel for good. But notice what he does. Even though he had the idols in his home, he is finally cleaning house. It is finally time to put away the worship of all those other gods. He is finally making a definitive break. That's repentance. 
And there's remembrance. So he goes back to the place that God, he met God, where he had the powerful experience. And God shows up and reminds him of all the covenant promises. In verse 11, he tells him, be fruitful and multiply. If you're paying attention in Genesis, you still think, well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Adam was told, be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1. Well, Adam and Eve were told to be. Noah was told to be fruitful and multiply in chapter 9. Abraham was told, be fruitful and multiply in chapter 17. And again, in chapter 28, it was told to Jacob. So, that language is not just about having a bigger family, though that is part of the blessing to him, but it involves more than simply having more kids, uh, gaining more things in your life. It is about growing and extending the circle of blessing on others. He is reminded that he will be given a people and a place just like Abraham and Isaac had been promised. I mean, all these things that God says to him uh, in verses 11 through tw- and 12 are things he's already heard before. It is the same old song. <laughs> it's all the things God's promised. And yet he needs to be reminded again and again and again. He needs to be reminded of his new name that he is Israel. He is not Jacob the way he used to be. Though he's still that. (laughs) But he is now the one that God has wrestled with. The one that God is redeeming. And listen, the good news is that same old song that we need to hear again and again and again. And, what, and the blessings that Jacob experiences have nothing to do with what he accomplishes. They have nothing to do with his own goodness. They have nothing to do with his achievements, with his intelligence, with his gifts, nothing. The good news is not that Jacob is a pretty good guy, and so God accepted it. It has nothing to do with the gospel. It is unmerited. That is grace. That is what grace is. It's not, grace is never simply that we were in some sort of neutral state and God was kind to us. It's actually that we were in a state of not deserving His love, not deserving His kindness, not deserving what He has given us, and yet, and yet, because of who He is, He gives His grace. He gives all of those things, even though we are sinners. So that Jacob is both sinner and saint at the same time. He is someone who is being redeemed out of his sins and by the grace of God. 
He is blessed because of what God gives him. On no account of what he has accomplished. That's the good news. And we like to think of ourselves as maybe not being so obtuse and horrible at times as Jacob is. But listen, the more we give in to that idea that we are somehow not so bad off, the more we actually resist the grace of God. The more we resist confronting our own sinfulness, the more we resist the grace of God. That is a gospel truth. Because Jesus came to save sinners. He didn't come to call the righteous. The righteous. We should put scare quotes around it, right? That's what he means, right? Those who are righteous in their own eyes. Jesus has no time for them. And in fact, that is the case, isn't it? The only people that Jesus is harsh with are who? The religious professionals that think they've got it all figured out. And what Jesus has time for is sinners. What Jesus has time for are those who know that they need God to be gracious to them. And we spend so much time and effort trying to convince ourselves of the delusion that we're not in that bad a shape. And the net gain of that is that we understand and appreciate less and less of the grace of God. There is a counterintuitive truth in this, right, that the way to grow is to start to be, as a Christian, the way to grow spiritually is to start to be more honest about the depth of my need. Because the good news is, and this is what Jacob received by promise, but what we receive because Jesus has already arrived, what we receive is the grace of God and what we need and what satisfies even the depths of our sin is His death and resurrection. Martin Luther puts it this way, and Luther was the king of pointing out that we are always this side of eternity, both sinner and saint. Uh, He lived that out pretty well himself, actually. He said, we define a Christian not as someone who has no sin, but as someone to whom God does not impute sin through faith in Christ. This doctrine brings great consolation to poor, afflicted consciences and serious and inward terror. We therefore have good reason to keep reminding, uh, to reminding our minds of the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness for Christ's sake. Christ, the Lord of the law, is present in our hearts. So when the law accuses us and sin terrifies us, we look to Christ. And when we have laid hold on him by faith, we have present with us the conqueror of the law, sin, death, and the devil. He reigns and rules over them so that they cannot hurt us. Jesus' death and resurrection is what Jacob needed, and it is what you needed. 
nothing short of Jesus, the Son of God made flesh, giving his life for you would suffice. Nothing short of him dying the death you deserved, the death I deserve. Nothing short of him dying like that would do. This is the great gospel mystery, is that in giving his life for ours, you know, in technical speak, we call it double imputation, right? That he received the guilt for our sins and we receive the righteousness that he earned. And that is the wonder of the gospel. Is that in the midst of all of my sin, he gave his life for me. And we shouldn't get past that. I think the more that we spend time thinking about that, we can't get past it. What we need to be reminded of is the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And you see, I'm not saying that then there is no change for our lives. No, I still believe that our lives are changed. Scripture is quite clear in calling us to live live lives that are changed. The question is what we think it means to be changed. Do we think that what we need to then become is the kind of person that no longer needs Jesus? Because that is to fall back into the lie. But rather, to pursue things not on our own efforts, but by the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what that means, okay? To pursue things by our own efforts is like the New Year's resolutions, and how many New Year's resolutions have you ever kept? Like zero, right? Like nobody ever keeps a New Year's resolution. The problem, well, one, one theologian, one of my favorites, John Owen, puts it this way. He says, duties, meaning just coming up with a list of all the things you're supposed to do, are excellent food for an unhealthy soul. But they are no physic, by that he means cure, for a sick soul. Spiritually sick men cannot sweat out this distemper with working, but this is the way of men who deceive their own souls. I know many people who are Christians who think, here's what I've got to do is create a list. These are all the things I've got to buckle down on. And look, a list of, that is an understanding of your sins is an, it's a helpful thing. <laughs> you should probably have one, at least in your head somewhere, <laughs> of like, these are the things that I struggle with. But the question is, why do you struggle with them? And until you answer that question, that just like Jacob, you will, pro- you will be trying to deal with your situation. You will be trying to deal with Uh, all these kind of outward manifestations of the problem, and you will never get to the heart of the matter. Because Jacob was always looking for something to fill 
his sense of meaning and purpose and goodness. And until we start to identify why we are motivated to do the sins we do, we will probably not make a lot of progress. And the more that we understand why we do the things we do, we see the beauty of what Jesus has actually accomplished. That when I am fueled by my sense of needing approval, I find in Jesus the beauty of one who receives me, not on the basis of anything I've done, and whose reception of me cannot be denied because he gave his body and blood. When I think that I need control, I have one who gave up all authority and control in my place because he loved me and has taken it back up, having done away with my sin. When I think that I just need to be comforted, I have one who has experienced the worst sorrows and borne all of that for me. You see, the way to be changed is not to just come up with a list of all the things I've got to do right. And let me try to work on them. Get a plan together. It is to deal with my heart before Jesus. It is to start to ask the hard questions about what's really happening below the surface. And it is to cling to all of the good things that Jesus has, of all the goodness that he's shown and how all of it comes to a head at the cross when he gave his life for me. You see, to rely on the Holy Spirit then is not just some mystical nonsense. Because what we're told that the Spirit does is teach us about Jesus. It is to start to ask about what, what motivates me, what is my heart interested in, and how do I find that and even more in what Christ has done. That is how change actually begins, and that involves repentance. It involves prayer. It involves all these other things, and it involves, above all else, a remembrance of Christ and Him crucified. So let's stop talking about it and get to this meal. Father, we praise you because all that we need is given to us by Jesus. That all that we really need for our hearts, as desperate as they may be for approval and control, for comfort, all this is found in Christ. And we thank you that you give us this meal so that we would be reminded 
that in his body and blood he has given it all. And more than we even knew to ask or could have imagined that we needed is found in him. So feed us as we come to this meal, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.